Okay, let's open our Bibles to Esther chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 4 and following. We'll finish up the chapter, believe it or not, this evening. That's uh, 4 through 22. Now, we've mentioned that God is not mentioned. The word God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. And because God is not mentioned once throughout the entire drama of Esther, uh, many in the church have even wondered why the book was included in the canon. Martin Luther, the reformer, he didn't like the book of Esther. John Calvin, the reformer, they said that he didn't preach one sermon from Esther and listed in his commentaries. Now, I haven't looked at his commentaries, so I don't know. But the uh, Jewish people, on the other hand, though, throughout history, they revered the book. Despite the fact that neither Esther nor Mordecai mentioned the law of God or even the name of God. Now, this is where man makes a mistake. This is where man tries to overcome uh, a problem that he has and and difficulties that are there Jewish scholars at one time tried to remedy the fact by adding several sections in the Greek Septuagint and uh, that's a translation of the Hebrew but they added to it they composed 107 verses in all uh, it it included the, the prayers of Mordecai and the prayers of Esther, which would bring out God and praying to God and emphasize this. Now, the Catholic Church endorsed it, but the Protestant scholars, they chose to just go with the book as it was first penned. And so for centuries, we wondered about the absence of the name uh, of God in the book of Esther. And uh, it teaches us, though, one of the main points, and I pointed this out last week, and this is a thing that we're going to be looking at over and over again. It teaches us that even when God is invisible, He is involved. And we need to understand that, because a lot of times, you know, I mean, He's invisible to us, but uh, we see him at work in, in places and situations and people, but he himself is invisible. And so we need to really grasp hold of this so that it will continue to strengthen our faith as it has with the Jewish people over the years. Esther has become one of the greatest revelations of the providence of God in Scripture. And so as we look at Esther, we're going to really be looking at a, a narrative story, or if you want to, a play being revealed, different scenes of it, and uh, what, however you want to put it, and however you want to make it to be, either one is, uh, is a good way to look at Esther. And so as we begin, we're going to be looking at the first scene, or the first part of it, and that is the lavish party that was presented 
Now I want you to look in verses 1 through 9. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. We know that's the uh, title. Uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne which was at the citadel in Susa. In the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the, uh, uh, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and splendor of his great majesty for many days. Matter of fact, 180 days, six months. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So at the end of that, seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. That's where it was held. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held um, by cords of fine purple linen, on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drink or the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Basti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So this was the third year of his reign, 21 year reign. He was a very powerful king from Susa, his capital. Uh, he ruled the vast Persian Empire. And this was a party where the king holds nothing back. He goes all out. If you look at the, uh, those verses, it shares with us this, how elaborate it was. And it went on for six months. And then at the end of that, seven more days. And so the king, also known as Xerxes, seemed to have plenty of funds to, to burn, if you will, to, to spend. And so he was feeding his guests from around the kingdom for 180 days, six months. Now, I, I know some of you have daughters, and the, uh, the uh, wedding, uh, the uh, parties and, and uh, the, the feeding of the guests at the wedding rehearsals and, and the wedding uh, reception, the, the banquets can become very expensive, can't they? And then on top of that, sending them on trips. Now they want to go on trips, and so they want the parents to, to take care of that. Uh, so it becomes very expensive. Well, this isn't a drop in the bucket to what he was spending. I mean, it was elaborate. And we are not told exactly, I mean, specifically the purpose behind the banquet for these nobles and officials. But uh, secular history tells us, uh, or gives us some insight, 
of the reason for the banquet because the, the Greece and the Persians were uh, two superpowers during that day and time. And uh, it seems that the banquet at this time was designed for a couple purposes, for future battles, which a couple of them that he lost, but uh, to, uh, to, to make sure that the people would be behind him and, and he would be powerful enough and they wouldn't uh, fret about it and they would get behind him, but also to prove to his subjects that he has everything that he boasted, that he is everything that he boasted to be. He's powerful. And he was a very prideful person. So it, it, even one of the titles was what? The king of all the earth. So he wanted them to know this. He wanted, he wanted them to let them know that he was, he was bringing the whole country under his, or the whole world under his rule. And that was his intent. So in verse 5, we're told that the king threw open the doors to include everyone in the palace here. Uh, when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days at the end of the 180 and and uh, all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace, attended. Now, it seems that all the administrative staff, his chief of staff, his family and his friends, all attended. They were invited. And the description of the elaborate event that we read in verses 6 through 7 shows us the money that was spent in building this and, and, uh, and the elaborateness of it all. I mean, it was to impress other people. We impress people by the way, by what we have a lot of times. We try to impress people by uh, the money we have. We hear in this country, we, we hear it all the time, the rich, the elite, the schools that we go to, all of this. So this is no different here. He was trying to impress the people because, and especially the leaders, so that they would be behind him, that, that they would follow him. And, and just a side note here to let you know how beautiful and how elaborate it was, the Persian word for garden is paradea. Now, the Greek word adapted from that is parodesos, parodesos. You know what the English word is? Paradise. That's what comes from it. Paradise. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that the audience of the palace, as they looked out over his garden, it was so elaborate it looked like paradise. I mean... It had the hedges, it had the trees, it had everything in order. It was beautiful, and the ponds and the reflection of it all. And as they sat in the, uh, the ballroom or whatever where they ate, what did they see? They saw this elaborateness, and so it helped not only in seeing the, the beautiful building, building and all, but to see outside and to say, paradise. This is paradise. And he, why? Because he was king of kings. There wasn't anything that he couldn't have or do. So it was a magnificent garden. And 
only the important ones got the invitation that were inside the, uh, uh, the order that he had there. And so the movers, if you will, and the shakers, and if you weren't a mover and shaker, then you had to know somebody and be close to them that was a mover and shaker. Now, if you were outside looking on and you saw this wonderful feast and you saw this party that went on and you saw all that was spent and you saw all that that he had then he would seem pretty powerful wouldn't he and he did to most people he seemed like the commanding sovereign that could could and would defeat other kingdoms if necessary and that's what he wanted to imply and get across to the people but the Bible also tells us something about being prideful, doesn't it? Because he was a very prideful man. He had to be in, in this position, the way he was coming across to the people. What does it say in Proverbs? It says in chapter 16, verse 18, it tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So... Being a prideful man, he knew how to appeal to the pride of others. Isn't that how the non-believer usually operates? It shouldn't be how the believer operates. Unfortunately, we get in the flesh. A lot of times we think that we have to operate the same way. I mean, we're not beyond it, but uh, we see that uh, Ahasuerus, he needed to learn instead of appealing to the pride of others he needed to learn something that's very important that's taught in in scripture and that is all people in authority are really second in command god's number one god is the one who is in control of all things so people need to to remember that all authority as it says in romans chapter 13 1 comes from god all authority so the king wanted the, the, his banquet, and he uh, wanted his guests to envy him. He wanted them to see him as a man who had the world by a string, or on a string. And one would think that this king could command the greatest armies of the world. He was a king who, who uh, had power extended from Pakistan to North Africa but you know there's an irony in this and God is very very humorous at times he brings out that humor here such an irony here was a king that had all this power and look at his request for his wife look at it in verses 8 through 11 it was a very selfish request says the drinking was done according to the law in verse 8. There was no compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. And then Queen Vasti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So she was, she was entertaining them while the king was entertaining the men in different places it seems to be. Not much is said about Vasti. I know Jewish tradition 
talks about her and her being maybe the king, uh, the great granddaughter of uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but we, we don't know that for certain. But on the last day of the feasting, we're told that when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he summoned his seven eunuchs who served him and told them, bring the queen, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. Now, it seems the king wanted to show his wife off uh, before this banquet. Another pawn for him, another possession for him to show off. Some scholars I know say that this was this had sens sensual content and context there because Persian kings were or, or Persian women were very beautiful, and that she was just to wear the uh, uh, the royal uh, diamonds and all of this, and that was all she was to wear, and he was to uh, parade her around. And others say, no, that doesn't mean this. It, it, it just meant that she was to be brought over and he was to show her beauty. Whatever this is talking about, we know that it's talking about and degrading the value of a woman. Because he had 360 concubines and several wives. And, you, you know, we probably aren't surprised that, that uh, his actions with the queen was to show her off as another possession of his. And that's what he wanted to do. But you know what? We have a lot of that today, don't we? We have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, our society parading women around and using them as toy, toys and objects and possessions just like this king did. And so... His spirit is still alive today, unfortunately. But then we see her response, and it was a brave response. It says in verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. 180 days of celebration. Then to top it all off, Following the six-month celebration, the king and queen threw two separate seven-day parties for the cream of the crop. And at the conclusion of this seven-day celebration, the king, who was drunk or had been drinking a lot, and he commanded the eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the other dignitaries and important men of his party. He wanted to show her off. And so the queen had had enough. And she said no. Doubtless she had much, probably had suffered much from this king before in this way. And so she refused him. Now this is something that you just don't do. Can you imagine these eunuchs taking this to her? And her saying, no, oh, wait, wait a minute, queen. You don't say no to the king. That's a no-no. You just say yes and come and oblige him. 
And she said no. And then what did that do? That, had, that put that back on them. And they had to go and tell the king. Now, could you imagine them coming back in and how they were in trying to tell the king? Well, uh, where's the queen? Uh, come on, speak up. Well, uh, she, she what? She's sick? What is it? She said no. What? She said no? Man, it could mean her life. And if it didn't mean her life, it would, could mean everything that she was used to as far as her lifestyle was concerned. And so if the king chose not to take her life, then she was risking everything that she had. This is so very important because here a queen was willing to sacrifice her crown for the sake of her character. She was tired of it. Tired of him. I want to ask a question here. Or a few questions. What are we worth? How far are we willing to go in order to win praise or get attention? What will we sacrifice in order to get along with the crowd? Have you ever lost something because you did something right? Maybe a relationship. Maybe you know somebody of losing that in their relationship. Maybe a sales contract work that you could have gotten but you didn't because you weren't going to sacrifice your principles how about a passing grade you knew you could cheat you knew that you could do certain things but you were cutting it short you were going the wrong direction what about a job you know of anybody or have you ever applied for a job and you knew that you didn't get a job because you knew what they were doing and you were not willing to do it. This will dramatically cost Basti. The queen had not just refused the king, but she had refused him in front of all the important people that he was trying to impress. Now just think about that move he is supposed to command the greatest empire on the planet the greatest army that one would face on the earth but he now cannot even control his wife he has made a been made a fool in front of the dignitaries and all the leaders of the kingdom who for six months he had been trying to convince to follow him. Wow. Well, let's look at what humiliation and anger can lead to. It can lead to a reaction 
that reacts in a very ludicrous manner. Look in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was a custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him. These are the wise men. These were men who were considered perceptive. You know, very suave about uh, and savvy about the, the culture. Wise about imperial, imperial interests. So the king required the sharpest minds of Persia to decide, this is the key, domestic problems. You see, in an authoritative regime, rulers rarely ask for personal advice. And Xerxes knew this, so what did he do? He used it in terms of legality instead of personal situations so he asked according to the law must be done to what must be done to queen vasti she has not obeyed the command of king xerxes in verse 15 when there is no edit edit or edit to address a problem then you create one and that's what they did you're the king, why not create it? So one of the counselors, Mamukin, came up with a plan. He says, Vasti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles. And look how ludicrous this is. This is what I'm talking about. But also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. The queen, here it is. The queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands. Now, how does he know this? In essence, within 24 hours, the Persian and the Median, uh, the Mede women of nobility, will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. That's what he's telling them. We'll all be in trouble with our wives. They'll go on strike. The skillets and the pans will fly. The laundry will pile up. The dishes, they'll never be washed again. And meals, who will cook those? Total anarchy. How ludicrous. Now here is their advice in verses 19 and 20. If it pleases the king, let a royal edit be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Mede, Media so that it cannot be repealed. It cannot be repealed. That Vasti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor, and this is the key. Look at the bottom part of it. Then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. That's what we need, guys, isn't it? So that our wives will honor us. 
Good, strong Eddie. We'll let Daniel draw it up. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In other words, what they're saying is when the wife starts to talk back, not clean the house, not do the dishes, not react the way that she should, not talk to you the way that she should, when she disagrees with you and refuses to honor you, then point to the edit. We'll point to the edit that he makes. And remind them of what happened to Queen Vasti. What's the problem here? Problem is, respect isn't legislated, is it? It's not legislated. You earn it. It is a gift that is given by your mate who you respect. You can't force respect from your spouse. That's something that is sown, watered, and fertilized before it bears fruit. King Ahasuerus wanted respect from a woman he hasn't shown respect to. And that just doesn't work. He wanted honor from his wife, whom he dishonored. But you know the neat thing about all of this. All of this, the king's embarrassed. The king now uh, has his men come up with this edit. The, the king now comes up with this plan to take care of this problem. His wife, or he, so he thinks, and he thinks they're doing it, and he's still in charge, and he's going to still look good, and, and he's going to uh, move people. He's going to be a mover and a shaker and all of this. But guess who's working behind the scene all this time? He's not showing himself. He's quietly working behind the scene to what? To bring a new queen to the forefront. To his side, a queen by the name of Esther, an orphan girl, a Jewish girl who will help lead and be used by God in saving Israel. A girl who will become queen and be used by God to influence a king in order to rescue the chosen people of God. In closing, we need to remember, and this is a beautiful book, beautiful story, beautiful narrative being un unveiled and, and uh, revealed to us and uh, or a play being uh, acted out before us. It shows us that God is sovereign, and we've got to believe in that. And he is in control even when things seem to be out of control. And boy, so often that happens in our life, doesn't it? Man, just be a control freak. You'll soon find out that you're not a control person, that you're not the one who is in control because things will get all out of control. 
God is sovereign and he is in control, even when things seem out of control. And we need to also, second of all, realize this, and, you know, and that is to desire to please him, no matter how out of control things are, no matter what the cost may be, just like this queen. She was willing to sacrifice. Well, she wasn't a believer, but we need to stand up like that. You know, I am glad that some of this stuff is being revealed and, and what you sow, you reap eventually, but this Weinstein, I believe, and, and all this that came up, came out, where he abused uh, women and all, or raped them or whatever, these cases, I mean, he needs to be charged for it. There's no excuse for that. Abusing uh, or taking, uh, you know, and, and using women like that. But I heard one movie star, a, a girl, say there's a lot of hoopla going on. There's a lot of things being said, and they're, they're making a bigger thing out of it now. The movement is, the Me Too movement, than it should be. And she went on to say, why didn't they just say no and not go? You see, sometimes it means not a movie. It means not a part. It means not a job. It means not friend, not having certain friends. It means not having a position. Well, Mike, that's easy to say. For you to say, yes, it's easy to say. And it's, it, but it's not easy to do. And we need to start teaching our, our family of, uh, of God, I, the ones that, that are part of the family. We need to start teaching them that there are choices that need to be made. And those choices need to go and be according to God's word. And we don't need to focus so much on, well, we've got our rights. Yes, we do, but we need to focus just as much on we have responsibility. And sometimes our, our obedience will be very costly. Also, beware of pride and anger. Pride and anger can be a part of our life also. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. And if anger, the last thing, if, if, if anger is left unchecked, can and more than likely will cause more problems. It did with him. It just kept on snowballing. We need to confess it and forsake it. As I've shared with you before, Dr. Level, the older Dr. Level, not the, uh, the last one that was president of New Orleans, but the one before him, his dad said, I believe with all my heart that one of the greatest things, our greatest faults of the church that's keeping it from experiencing revival is pride. He says, we are a people that don't want to humble themselves. To say that we're wrong, to say that we've made mistakes, to say that we've sinned. 
let us not be that kind of people because pride goes what before before fall and destruction haughty spirit before fall let's all stand at this time